Welcome to the Diabulimia Podcast, powered by Diabetes Qualified. Hi, I'm Katie Allison, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian with Diabetes New South Wales and ACT. And I'm here today with Lisa Robbins, who is the principal psychologist at Diabetes Clinical Psychology. Lisa specialises in working with people on emotional issues which impact on diabetes management. She holds qualifications in clinical psychology and diabetes education and is doing a PhD on diabetes and depression. Lisa, how are you today? I'm great. Looking forward to this chat. I've heard a lot about diabulimia lately and Mm -hmm. I was hoping you could tell me a little bit more about it. What is diabulimia? Diabulimia is actually a term that was created by the press and it's referring to the intentional misuse of insulin for weight control. And that's either by decreasing your insulin dose or omitting insulin entirely. So basically the function of doing this is that by restricting or omitting insulin, you induce a hyperglycemic calorie wasting through urination and thereby weight loss. Um, And you also would have the typical uh, side effects that you would get with high blood sugar like fatigue and irritability and things like that. So who is most likely to be at risk of diabulimia then? It's actually quite difficult to answer because at the moment, the research that we have in this area isn't comprehensive. What we do know from the research is that it does tend to be women um, between the ages of 15 and 30 who are most likely to present with this condition. So we've got research from Hanlon and colleagues uh, from 2013, and they found that the prevalence of any eating disorder is 2.5 times higher for women with type 1 diabetes compared to the general population. We also know from Colton and colleagues um, from research in 2004 that disordered eating behaviour, and that's eating behaviours that are um, problematic but below the threshold for diagnosis, are also two times higher for women with type 1 diabetes. Um, in 2015, Colton and colleagues also found that the average age of onset for disordered eating is age 23. Um, and back in 94, Polonsky and colleagues um, had findings that suggested that insulin restriction rates peak in late adolescence to early adulthood for women. So they, that was up to 40% of women between 15 and 30 years of age were presenting with insulin restriction. So that's approximately one in two people walking in the door in that age range. So what does an average journey look like for someone living with diabulimia? That's a really great question. And the reason it's such a great question is that it's actually going to highlight that there isn't an average journey for people who have type 1 diabetes and an eating disorder. What we know is that actually people can fall across multiple diagnostic categories. So you might meet at one stage of your journey criteria for bulimia nervosa. So you're engaging in binge eating and there's insulin emission as the purging mechanism. Um, at a different stage, you might have people who aren't engaging in binge eating, but they are significantly restricting their energy intake um, and they have very low weight. And then on top of that, they're also emitting insulin or restricting insulin to achieve further weight loss. Um, at another point in time, you might have people who meet criteria for other specified feeding or eating disorder. And in this situation, they might not have... Um, significantly low weight or be underweight. They also might not be binge eating, but they are still purging through insulin emission. So I I think this really illustrates just how different the condition can look. Mm. And that's just when we're talking about diagnostic categories. If you're looking at sub-threshold 
diagnostic symptoms. Then you've got things like occasional insulin emission um, to perhaps do something like achieve a, achieve a particular goal at one point in time. So things that I have come across are women who occasionally uh, reduce or emit insulin in order to lose weight for an event or something like that. So it might just be occasional. Mm. Here it's really problematic because they're still at risk of those acute complications that we were talking about earlier. So really it's highly variable. Um, insulin emission can be infrequent right through to a very frequent and uncontrollable pattern of insulin emission. Uh, and then the other behaviours that can go with it are also highly variable. So you may have binge eating, you may not. You may have uh, a significantly underweight individual, you may not. I guess with that being considered and how different it can be, what are some of the signs and symptoms for a health professional to look out for? One of the ways I like to conceptualise this is by thinking of a tip of the iceberg model. So if we go to something like bulimia in the general population, not women with diabetes or um, men with diabetes, um, you would be uh, sort of thinking of the things that are under the water or under the iceberg, the things that we don't see. And they're signs and symptoms like body dissatisfaction, negative thoughts and feelings about yourself, dieting behaviours, um, physical feelings like hunger and even binge eating. They can be quite easy to conceal and what's often seen is the purging mechanism because that's much more difficult to hide over time from friends and family. If you try and translate this model across to type 1 diabetes, it doesn't work. Uh, and the reason it doesn't work is because the purging mechanism is very easy to hide. That tip of the iceberg is actually underneath the water. So purging by insulin emission or insulin restriction can be done in plain sight with family and friends present and utterly oblivious to the fact that it's happening. The tip of the iceberg uh, in this context tends to be what health professionals see in their day-to-day -day practice. Um, and that's why it's so important that we're cognizant of looking for these signs and symptoms when we're working. Uh, so what you do tend to see as a health professional is compromised health due to the insulin restriction and emission. So that will be things like high HbA1c that is unexplained, blood glucose level records that seem to be a mismatch with what someone's declaring or that aren't being shown and are continuously being not brought to appointments or forgotten. Um, it could be repeat DKA admissions and other things like just general concern about weight and request for things like weight management medication, changes in their eating patterns, increases in things like infection rates um, and also earlier onset of complications. Now, it's important to note as well that while these are signs and symptoms potentially, there's a lot of other conditions that can also lead to these signs and symptoms. So say, for example, fear of hyperglycemia. So it's really not just a matter of noticing these symptoms, but starting to explore um, why the signs and symptoms are present. If a health professional does suspect that their patient has diabulimia, what would you recommend would be the next step in their, in their management? The first thing I would do would be to ask some open-ended questions. Um, so if you're seeing things like these symptoms, a few simple questions might start to elicit the information that you want to know to be able to move forward. So it would be a question like, how do you feel about um, insulin at the moment and taking insulin uh, that can potentially give you a lot of information about what people are thinking about insulin and whether there's a link between insulin and weight control for them. If you don't feel comfortable with asking these kinds of open-ended questions, I would absolutely 100% very strongly advocate that you use a screening tool. Um, the one that I prefer to use is the DEPSAR. So that's the Diabetes Eating Problems Survey Revised. Um, it's a 16-item diabetes-specific eating disorder screen. 
You've got a like it scale from never to always. It takes five minutes to administer or less for some people who are speedy. It's validated with excellent reliability and validity. Um, higher scores on it indicate greater eating disorder pathology. And there's also cutoff scores, which recommend that you do further assessment. This screen is is so, so, so helpful. I can't stress that enough. The same kind of open-ended questions that I was just talking about before are in this questionnaire. So not only do you get something that indicates when you should potentially be referring on, but you also get something that can open that conversation up for you if you're not comfortable asking those open-ended questions yourself. All you need to do is look at the results that they've completed and pick up on that. So if, for example, you see an item on the questionnaire and they've indicated that, yes, sometimes they do feel like, um, you know, taking insulin will make them put on weight, you can refer to that question and say, I can see here that you might be struggling with this. Can you tell me more about it? And that introduces those kinds of screening questions and the dialogue you need to have in order to start writing down a referral. I guess considering the differences between disordered eating or eating disorders and eating disorders in people living with diabetes, do you think that traditional eating disorder treatments or therapies are effective in managing diabulimia or eating disorders in diabetes? I think I'd refer back to the literature that we've got, which isn't a lot, but what we do know from the research to date um, is that it doesn't seem to be effective. So Kalita Ishmael um, from King's College in London did a systematic review on this um, within the last couple of years. And in her findings, a CBTE, for example, didn't seem to be helpful. She's really doing a lot of work in this area and she runs the only outpatient um, clinic for people with diabetes and an eating disorder in the UK. And along with Dr Anne Goble-Fabree from Jocelyn, they both recommend that treatment actually focuses on both the eating disorder symptoms and diabetes self-management um, and that both of these things are at the forefront of treatment planning. And that's why standard eating disorder treatments that only focus on the eating disorder are probably not sufficient to help this population. Who would be, I guess, the go-to or an effective diabulimia management team in an ideal world? In an ideal world, you have everyone working collaboratively because it's such a complex um, condition to treat. You need to be making adjustments continuously to diabetes self-management and you also need to be treating the emotional well-being aspect of it at the same time. So you'd have an endocrinologist, diabetes educator, dietitian and psychologist working very closely together. Um, in, a best, in a best practice model, I think you would also be having frequent uh, consultations as a group um, so that as things change across the treatment trajectory, you're all supporting each other and all responding in a uniform way. To what needs to be achieved next. With all that considered, what is your take-home message you would like health professionals to be aware of when it comes to diabulimia? My take-home message is that at the moment, um, I think that this condition is underdetected, and because it's underdetected, it's undertreated. We need to do a lot more in terms of. Um, upskilling in order to recognise the signs and symptoms of this condition and also do a lot more in terms of um, referring people and getting them the help that they need when they need it. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really interesting to hear more about diabulimia um, and your experience in the area. I'm sure that those listening found it very informative and know what to look out for and where to go for extra help. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Diabulimia podcast. For more information, head to diabetesqualified.com.au.